My name is Ryan Vincent. If you don't know who I am, I work with our adult ministries here, and um, I'm going to be walking us through the first 12 verses of Matthew 16, if you want to go ahead and head that direction. Um, one of the most fascinating things about people, myself included, all of us, is we have this overwhelming inability to be satisfied with whatever we have. With whatever's been given, with whatever we see, we have this ability to just long for more. One of those areas where I see this most clearly is in sports. Um, one of the most recent events in at least that we would all have a, an opinion about, most of us, the Oklahoma City Thunder are doing pretty well by all accounts, have an incredible season, have the best team of the year on the ropes, and then let it slip through their fingers. And to hear the commentary around that, that well, if we had just got a bounce here, or if that shot goes in, or if the, if the ref blows the whistle then, or if we just make this move, yeah, it, all the ifs and could'ves and would'ves, and those of us who know the human heart, who know our inability to be satisfied, look at that and say, I think I knew you would say that no matter what happened. You wouldn't be satisfied. We can have a good week in the stock market. Our retirement accounts can be solid. And yet I, I, I often hear, if I had just stayed in a little longer, gotten out a little sooner, I would have I done better. And knowing the human heart, the rest of us say, yeah, I think I knew you would feel that way. Or she passes away and she's rather young. Her husband says, I would do anything for one more day with her. We all think that we're prepared to handle the loss of someone we care about. We all think we are. And yet when it happens, those around the one left See, I, I knew it would hurt this bad. We're never satisfied with what we have. Men of great influence and prestige from the big city with all the titles and all the respect that go along with it will go out to the rural areas, criticize a man who seems to be doing rather well, but he's from the country, has a thick accent, and they'll walk up to Jesus and say, give us a sign from heaven. We know that you've done some incredible things, but we want one more sign. And as you'll see in our story today, I think Jesus kind of ends with, I knew you'd say that. I know that's how your heart thinks. We're gonna see two pictures in today's account in Matthew 16 of a heart that refuses to be satisfied and one that struggles to do so but has a hard time. And Jesus has a, a very particular response to each. So let's go to our text this morning and ask the question, is Jesus sometimes not enough? To those of us who love him that can seem blasphemous, but to those who 
have trouble with Jesus, this is a real question. Is he, on occasion, not enough? Starts in 16.1. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came. And to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. Now, we need a point of clarification right here from the jump. We tend to read the scriptures as if when they throw these names up, these groups of people, they're just the same. They're religious leaders. And there's really no distinction between Pharisee, Sadducee, scribe, whatever. But these are two groups of people. The Sadducees, very, very powerful the Pharisees, very, very influential and popular, but in terms of ideology, could not be further apart. On almost nothing do they agree in terms of their ideology, except for one thing, an absolute disdain for this miracle worker from Galilee. And so very unlikely companions leave the big city, go out into the country to ask Jesus to show them a sign from heaven. He answers them. When it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. Jesus lets them know right away, the things you care about, you understand. The economy, you understand. Your livelihood, you understand. It's not a matter of ability or mental capacity. It's a matter of choice. You understand that which you want to understand. And then he goes on. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign or asks for proof. But no sign will be given to them, given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. Now, this is the second time we've heard Jesus reference the sign of Jonah. That would, we would have also seen it in Matthew 12. But it's worth remembering what it is he's describing. In 12, it's very clear. Jesus says, the sign of Jonah, much like Jonah, who was seemingly dead for three days, and then by some miracle, God intervenes, and there is again life. You will, you will see my identity as the Messiah vindicated by my resurrection. Three days in the ground and then life again. By miraculous intervention alone, there can be no other way to describe this event. That is the sign of Jonah in Matthew 12. But a, a good Jewish way, and he's talking to leaders, a good Jewish way of referencing the, the sign of Jonah is to think about the entire story. Think about the entire story. Four chapters, and we can recount Jonah really quickly. God calls him to go to Nineveh, to the capital city of Assyria, which would have been to the northeast. This is a, this is, to call them a rival would be generous to Israel. This is an oppressive powerhouse sitting, sleeping to the northeast, waiting to conquer Israel, who by this point in Jonah's lifetime is very weak is a fledgling country with little to no economy, with terrible king after terrible king, and an army that is minuscule compared to that of Assyria. And the Israelites hated their guts. And God says, go preach to them a message of repentance so that I would not destroy them. And Jonah, the good Israelite that he is, says, nope, 
I'm not going to do that. I want you to destroy them. This is, a, this is an act, Jonah's rebellious act, running away, going off to Tarshish. His, his act of going the other direction is an act of self-preservation, one that says, no, that's our enemy. Please destroy them. I'm not, I do not want to go preach that message of repentance. Then we know the storm comes. They all start saying, who has offended their God? And Jonah's like, me. <laughs> um, this is my fault. And so they throw him overboard, he is swallowed up, he gets coughed back up on the land. That's the sign of Jonah according to Matthew 12. But that's not the whole story. Because according to Matthew 12, we do have this confirming resurrection. That's Jesus with Jonah. But there's more than that. Because Jonah walks into the capital city of Nineveh and preaches a message of repentance. And they repent. Now, we can debate until the cows come home if this was a salvific repentance, if this was a repentance that leads to salvation. I can see no reason to believe that it was. It is a, we will, we will worship you temporarily so that you won't destroy us. But it is a determinative call to repent. Jonah walks in and says, you need to recognize who God is or you will be destroyed. This can only go one of two ways. And they choose the way that Jonah hated, the way that preserves his enemy, the way that allows their empire to continue growing, which will, this is Jonah's concern, it comes true. In about 20 to 30 years, this army that God relents and refuses to destroy God uses 20, 30 years later to come down to Israel and level it. Jonah's concerns are fair. But the sign of Jonah is we'll see Jesus resurrect. Jesus, too, preaches a message of repent or be destroyed. It looks a little different, but it's a message of repentance. And then that fourth chapter of Jonah is the, probably the most profound of the four. Where, Mo, or where Jonah and God get into it. And he, he, in effect, tells God, I cannot believe you would extend this kind of mercy to those who aren't your people, to the outsider. We are the chosen people, and yet you are propping up our enemy. It is this scandalous inclusion of others. Which sounds a lot like Jesus' ministry. The inclusion of the Gentile, of the Samaritan, of those who are disenfranchised, those who don't hang around with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Jesus' sign is that he will resurrect and there will be an absolutely important call to repentance and that the whole world will benefit. You see the Abrahamic covenant being fulfilled in Jesus. You see the blessing to the nations taking place in him. And this beautiful line in Jonah 4, Jonah seemingly points his finger in God's chest, so to speak, and says, I knew you would do this. You are so loving and so merciful and so gracious that I knew you would save 
even the Ninevites. And he's furious. And the book ends, it's kind of right there. Jonah's mad, God is being gracious. And Jesus tells the Pharisees and the Sadducees, this is all you're gonna get. I'm not going to turn more bread into more bread. I'm not gonna take a few fish and multiply it again. I've already done it twice. (laughs) I'm not gonna heal someone just so that you'll believe. I'm not gonna raise someone else from the dead. What more do you want? You're only going to get me. Jesus says, you have decided not to believe in me. Now, this makes a lot of sense for those of us in the church. We're like, okay, well, that's an unbeliever's problem. That's someone who just refuses to accept Jesus. Why do we care so much about this particular passage? But that makes me a little nervous because then I start asking this question. Is it possible that I'm blind to some of these things too? Have you ever wondered why we always feel like we're right and 98% of the world is wrong? Like, how come I always get it and everyone else is crazy? How come everyone else is just struggling to understand the most basic things and everything that I believe is just right? In all likelihood, there are things that I believe that are incorrect and there are things that I believe that need to change. Because this problem, Jesus deals with the outsider, Pharisee, Sadducee, who are against him, and then he turns to his disciples, the insiders, and he challenges them. He goes on in verse five. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Now, it's important. This is in the big bread narrative of Matthew's gospel. We have recently seen him feed 5,000. We have just recently, right before this chapter, seen him feed um, 4,000. He says they forgot to bring bread. Jesus doesn't really care about the bread or their hunger. He just says, watch and beware the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, we brought no bread. But Jesus, in all his infinite wisdom, aware of this, said, oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive, do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered, or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Even those on the inside are having trouble with Jesus, having trouble recognizing him. The Pharisees and Sadducees would have been well aware of Jesus' miracles. That's why they show up and ask for one more. The disciples were there for all of them. And yet they struggled to understand him. And this tells me something about church folk. We are, we are insiders, part of the covenant community of God, with sincere motives and short memories. We sincerely want to follow God and to do well and to be well-saturated in Scripture and to live a Spirit-filled life and to be absolutely dedicated and devoted to Jesus, and we forget all the time the incredible things that he's done. I have never been a guy that can keep a journal. 
I know that it is a fantastic spiritual discipline. I know many men and women who keep prayer journals. They journal their prayers, and then years later, they'll come back and read what God has done, and they'll be like, I completely forgot that I asked God for that, and I completely forgot that he totally delivered. I'm, I'm horrible at it. I have a shelf of journals that are one to two pages in before I'm like, ah, forget it. I hate this. If anybody needs a moleskin journal, I got a bunch so I can just cut a few pages out and it's brand new. I have a very short memory. I haven't disciplined myself to keep track of these things and it tells me that I can be blind to certain missteps, to not understanding Jesus. So I have to ask, am I always right? Do I always get it? Why do I get Jesus correct when so many others struggle to do so? And if I'm honest, none of those things are probably true. So then I ask, what then is wrong? What do I do? Jesus explains and clarifies their confusion. He says in verse 11, how is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now we see what this passage is about. Jesus is cautioning them against teaching that would run contra him. It would go against Jesus. And this is important because teaching, this is a scary message to preach because it's kind of gonna be self-condemning if I get it wrong. Teaching is so important because it directs, it guides the mind, it guides the heart, it guides the will. Now the the spirit will do that as well, so will the collective um, witness of the church and the personal reading of scripture, but but teaching can take all that, package it, and deliver it. It can be very, very fruitful or very, very damaging. And Jesus just ends this section. Watch out for those guys. It won't go well for you if you buy what they say, lock, stock, and barrel. Now let's, let's look at a parallel passage or a passage that, that deals with this issue as well because I'm convinced that false teaching will produce false worship. If there's anything the Lord hates more than false teaching, it would be improper worship. You go through the Old Testament where God is furious and seemingly bloodthirsty, relentless, ruthless. It's because his name is being mocked through bad worship. I think bad teaching sends us that direction. This is what the Apostle John says in 1 John 4. He says, starting in verse one, beloved, do not believe every spirit, similar to Jesus's warning in Matthew 16, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. 
How do we test them? By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ or Jesus Messiah has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. It seems rather black and white to John. (laughs) Regarding the one who does not confess Jesus, this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. The Antichrist is not some person, it's a quality you have. There is no one Antichrist coming. Antichrist is just someone who is anti-Jesus, against Jesus, specifically who denies his incarnation, who denies God working in him. By every definition of Antichrist, the Pharisees and Sadducees are that. And it says that their their false teaching is false by definition because it runs contrary to that of Jesus. So anything that agrees with Jesus, good. Anything that disagrees with Jesus, bad. Simple. And yet sometimes hard to discern. On occasion, hard to discern. From 1 John 4, we can see that worshiping in the spirit of truth requires right belief. And right belief is at the mercy of orthodox teaching. According to John, orthodox or right teaching recognizes Jesus for who he is. Now this is um, a scary prospect (laughs) because now we think, okay, we're combing through our heads, think of sermons we've listened to, songs we love, books we cherish, I think, okay, should they run contrary to Jesus? How will I know that? How will I know if something is against Jesus, if it's not overt, if it's subtle? In John 5, we won't go there, but it's a great chapter to see what Jesus thinks about how easy it is to discern who he is. He says, In Jewish culture, you need two witnesses to testify to the truth. I'll do you one better. I'll give you five. He's being questioned by the Jewish leadership, and he says, I'll give you five reasons why I am who I say I am, and you can't refute a one of them. First, don't forget about my cousin, John the Baptist. He testified about me. His ministry pointed to me. I'm like, okay, that's a pretty good one. And then Jesus says, and don't forget about the Father. Remember the, that he spoke about me, that he is the one who audibly speaks about me. He testifies to me. That's a pretty good one, too. That's two. We have enough witnesses. Jesus keeps going. Don't forget about my works. Everything I do testifies to who I am. Everything I do is messianic. All of my miracles, I am fulfilling something. Well, where would we get that kind of information? From the fourth witness, the scriptures, they testify about me. Read your Bibles. This is funny, Jesus just yelling at religious leaders. Read your Bibles, they talk about me. And then he goes for the throat and says, and the fifth witness, if Moses were here, he would worship me. 
If Moses were here, he would worship me. Read Genesis, read Exodus, read Deuteronomy. They're talking about me. I'm the fulfillment of all of these scriptures. Jesus seems to think that it's plain, that his identity is obvious to those with eyes to see and ears to hear. But as so often is the case with the human heart, what's plainly given is not always enough. We're difficult to satisfy. We'll watch a basketball game, complain about a ref swallowing his whistle in the final minute. We'll be frustrated with our retirement account that is more than enough but isn't as much as we'd like. I just wish I had more time with her before she passed away. If your Jesus was so good, why is there so much evil in the world? I've read your Bible. The gospel just seems like therapy. It really is just the opiate for the masses. If you want me to believe in your God, he is going to have to work some miracle. How ironic, because that's all he seemed to do in the scriptures. He did send a sign from heaven. And it is shockingly clear. We should read Moses. We should read the prophets. We should read the gospels and we should read the letters of the New Testament and realize, God, we can recognize, I just knew you would do this because the Bible talks about it over and over and over and over again. So when we see Jesus, it's like, that seems pretty clear. You have fulfilled all of your promises. That's 2 Corinthians 1.20. In Jesus, all of God's promises are yes. They are summed up in him. He is the apex of revelation. There is nothing greater than Jesus. And we look back to Matthew 16 and just notice the brazen audacity of these men to walk up to God himself and say, do another trick for us. Then we might believe he says, you haven't seen anything yet. Just wait for the sign of Jonah. Jesus is the only one in whom everything makes sense. God's entire plan. Genesis doesn't make sense without Jesus. Abraham, who knows what that story is about short of Jesus. Moses' ministry as a prophet, who knows what that's about unless you read Jesus. The entire sweep of scripture only makes sense with him. So then what do we do? What is this passage asking us to do? Some of us worship badly because we refuse to see and hear the truth. You know what's comfortable? not changing. You know, it's uncomfortable being confronted with a truth that forces us to be transformed. Some of us are far too comfortable being okay with subpar worship, with a subpar lifestyle, with a life that doesn't really glorify Jesus but just pays lip service because we don't want him to change us. That sounds like a lot of work, I'm kind of tired. I'm just going to keep coasting. 
Some of us worship badly in that regard. Some of us worship badly because of bad teaching. Jesus says, you gotta watch out for those guys. Watch out for them. Some of us, and this is where this could cut, some of us teach people to worship badly. And that's not just ministers, it's not just teachers, it's parents with little kids. Whatever the case, the remedy is found in an accurate view of Jesus and who he is. When confronted with the revelation of God, whether it's this, whether it is the wise counsel of brothers and sisters in Christ, whether it is the Spirit's conviction, when confronted with that sort of revelation from God, the only life-giving option is to change our minds and to live in light of that truth. The way we talk about that around here is we need to repent and believe. We need to change our mind, we need to turn from any falsehood into the truth and believe that truth to such a degree that it starts to change us, that we live in that. We repent and we believe. Matthew 16 asks us to be more discerning when it comes to teaching or reading or spiritual conversations. At work, at home, we have to be more discerning. We have to recognize falsehood. And if that makes you nervous, I think this text is intended to make us nervous. Jesus offers no consolation for the disciples. He doesn't say, don't worry, it'll be fine. He just says, watch out for those snakes. Watch out for them. This text makes me a little anxious because now I feel a greater responsibility to recognize falsehood from truth. This text forces me to ask, what leaven should I be watching for? Who is leading me away from the Jesus as testified about in scriptures? and towards probably more a, a comfortable Jesus, one that won't confront me in my sin. This text kind of leaves us feeling heavy. It's got some weight to it. But we have the amazing opportunity, if we'll recognize the need for discernment, and if we will push into, press into the need to change, to actually repent, and then actually live out that repentance, we have an opportunity to lean on the mercy of Jesus. We have an opportunity to recognize that God has spoken clearly through his son. And we look at the cross, and we say, According to all the evidence, I knew you would do this. I knew you would be this gracious. Let's pray. Father, we 
have a tendency to find passages that comfort. And your scriptures are certainly full of those. But I pray that we would never run from those that challenge us. And ask us to take on responsibilities. Father, give us hearts and minds of wisdom and discernment that can recognize that which is for you and that which is against you. And also give us the courage to make difficult decisions. Embolden us with your spirit. Make us more like your son. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. There will be men and women down here should you want to continue this conversation or have any other conversation. Other than that, you are free to go. Have a good week.